Hello, mic check. Mic check. Can you guys hear me? Can you hear me? All right, that's good. Sorry, it's a habit to wear my mask. Huh? <laughs> okay. Happy Sabbath, everybody. Okay. I will begin with my scripture reading. So, it is here on the screen from Philippians 4, 12 to 13. I read from the NIV. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in, every and ev in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Again, in the book of Philippians 4, 12 to 13. Let us go on to the sermon. Uh, they need to change the slides. We let it happen first. <laughs> well, the slides change again. Good morning and happy Sabbath, everybody. My name is Nathaniel, and I was one of the two boys that hung off my father's shoulders <laughs> twenty years ago. <laughs> uh, don't worry, pa. I will still hang on to you, <laughs> though I weigh more than him now. <laughs> My name is Nathaniel again, and I welcome all of you to the final installment of this month's series from the voice of the young adults. You have heard inspiring messages from the three before me. Daniel is there, Sherwin is there, and Ella is there. Just to remind you, their sermon titles were, in chronological order, Sherwin preached to us about standing up for God. Daniel told us about facing the unexpected and Ella shared with us her thoughts on thoughts. The title of my sermon today is Happiness Is. Some of you, especially the older ones, might find this title familiar. I find it familiar. So the younger ones might find it familiar too. But we'll discuss that right after we pray. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come before you today on this lovely Sabbath morning to praise and to worship you. As the message here is brought forth, I pray that your message will be shared through me and that together with the congregation, I will learn and reflect on it. Guide us with your wisdom, your grace, and your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for praying with me. So, happiness is. Sounds familiar? Right? Oh, thank you. Yes, I heard that. <laughs> so, for those who are unfamiliar, it's a song done by the Maranatha singers, if I'm not mistaken. And it's a song sung some time ago. But for the sake of reliving good times, let's sing the first verse together. I'm sure some of you remember the lyrics. So I'll start and then you all join me when you're ready, okay? Happiness is to know the Saviour living a life Within His favour having a change in my behaviour, happiness is the Lord. Thank you so much. <laughs> now I know you all are awake and listening to me. <laughs> so, it's an old song, not that old, but it's a good one. I've heard it since I could sit in the car, which was about 20 years ago or so. We used to have a CD by all these singers and we would play it every Sabbath, or sometimes non-Sabbath days, but we would have it quite often. It tells us the Christian's approach to what happiness should be. In the first, four verses, uh, the first four lines, I've said, to know the Saviour, to live a life in His favour, changing my behaviour, and lastly, but most important one, happiness is the Lord. But let's think about it in the secular sense, okay, in the 
not non-Christian, but in the everyday life sense. Okay. What is happiness to you? Okay, while the slide is blank, you guys can think. Okay, I only have three examples here, but I know that the list is non-exhaustive. So, for some people, happiness could be a raise or a promotion. And for some people, depending on how much the raise is, the happiness will increase proportionately. <laughs> right? Some people might say that happiness is a new phone. Okay, I don't have my phone with me, but if I did, I would whip it out and show you. A new phone might be someone else's source of happiness, or any new appliance or apparel. For some people, it could be meeting and making new friends. Right? Among us, we have many people who enjoy the conversations they have with others, some people a bit less, but I'm sure everyone finds new friends be something that gives us joy or happiness. You know, meeting old friends, so I'll come back, glad to see you again. So, uh, just a side track. Last time, uh, Dean and Kylie used to run our children's church service. I remember one in particular where I think Auntie Kylie bought a cat and Uncle Dean is allergic. Uh, that was an interesting experience. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so these are some sources of happiness. Happiness to me is food. Okay, it doesn't have to be a good meal, it just has to be a full meal. Those who know me know that quantity is better than quality. <laughs> for me, okay, for me. I'm not saying this in general, but that's for me. And this is especially true when you look at the food we have here in ASDEC. But in ASDEC, the quality and quantity, whew, both top-notch. I mean, those who haven't seen our potluck, come back next week. Anyway, none of the things mentioned last forever. Food is temporary. It's meant to be consumed, right? Even if I preserve it, I keep it away in a locker for 700 years, like cheese or wine, it will be consumed one day. Salaries can increase, but inflation exists too. We have many financial and economic experts among the audience, and I'm sure you would agree with me that Inflation often outpaces the raises. <laughs> Appliances and apparel spoil and wear out. They are eventually replaced with newer and updated versions. And lastly, perhaps the most sad of all, family and friends, as much as we love them and hope they stay forever in our lives, will come and will go. So these are some examples of what gives us happiness. And obviously, they give us joy. But in the absence of these things, events, people, what happens? Are we still happy? What are the other emotions, the thoughts, the actions that take its place? What happens to our outlook on life? Does life become empty and meaningless? Like the slide? Okay, back to the song. There's a line in the chorus that goes, Real joy is mine, no matter if the teardrops start. It's actually the first line of the chorus, if I'm not wrong. But, you know, as a child, you take things literally and it doesn't really make sense. These tears are not tears of joy. I'm sure all of us, or most of us have experienced it at some point. But the words, no matter imply that joy should not accompany these tears. 
These tears instead are associated with sadness, suffering, anger and pain. In essence, the complete opposite of the state of happiness. It doesn't seem to make sense. They can't coexist. So, I tend to scratch my head a lot. So I scratched my head for many, many years. But I was, I was inspired by a conversation I had over a plate of shared roshti for brunch. An alternative view of happiness from a fresh set of eyes and my own mother tongue. So, the word happy in Mandarin has many, many forms and permutations. I'm sure those who speak Mandarin here would know, but I would only use one, and it's Kuala. If my pronunciation is off, uh, please forgive me. <laughs> this is a description of a state of happiness, joy or elation, the opposite of the emotions associated with tears. Furthermore, it is defined to be transient and temporary. It doesn't last forever. But at the same time, there was another phrase that came up in the conversation. It's manzu, man yi. It's another permutation of it. Translated into English, it means to satisfy, to fulfill, but most importantly, to be contented. Okay. This phrase in Mandarin encapsulates the entire essence of the English word contented, which is being satisfied or fulfilled despite circumstance. Maybe this is what the line was referring to. Right? No matter if the teardrops start, joy despite our troubles, our tears and our woes. Maybe it's not happiness we're looking for. Maybe it's contentment. So let us journey together and learn what the Bible says about contentment following one very particular person. So, this is a statue of one of the apostles, the students from my junior class. Where are they? I don't see any here. Eh? Is that Abby? Ah, my favourite student, Abby. Okay, the rest are all my favourites. But <laughs> the students from my junior class and my primary class should be quite familiar with him, right? Right. But before we continue with his story, I would like to remind us of his original name, Saul of Tarsus. And for most of us, we would know who this man was. A Roman citizen of Hebrew descent, he trained as a Pharisee, or one of the Jewish uh, religious officials, under the renowned Jewish rabbi Gamaliel, or Gamaliel, depending on whose pronunciation you use. So, Gamaliel, does this sound familiar? Anyone? The name doesn't sound familiar? It's okay. So, Gamaliel is one of the top-ranking Pharisees in his day, and earlier on in the book of Acts, chapter 5, you will read that he defends the apostles, the original apostles, Peter and John, from the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees when they were preaching. Because you know at that time when they were preaching, these Pharisees thought that these new people were heretics. Right? Why are you converting people away from our Judaistic faith, our heritage? But Gamaliel was different. He defended them. And he put forth that if God was speaking through the disciples, then the Jewish authorities and council would only be fighting God. It's a hard fight to beat. And it's, un it's under this great rabbi's tutelage that Saul 
becomes an expert on the law. It is mentioned in the Bible that he had so much zeal that he was the top candidate for the, for the next person to take over Gamaliel. He was that good, a scholar and a Pharisee in his own right. This made Gamaliel a bit unique in the sense that he looked upon these new Christian converts with more kindness and openness and understanding than his peers. But Saul, as we know, did not share the same opinions as his master. He saw these Christians as heretics and enemies of the state. He took, he took on the role of persecuting Christians, which culminated in the stoning of... Stephen. Stephen, thank you very much, the first martyr, before he decided to go up to Damascus to round up more of these new converts. Fortunately, we know that on the way there, he might he met sorry, a bright, blinding light on the road where Jesus rebuked him and solidified Saul's conversion into Christianity. From then on, Paul became a man on a mission, a man with the same zeal as before, but this time for Christ's gospel and message. Saul of Tarsus, this man, had become Paul, the apostle. What a transformation. So Paul, we use his new name now, one of the most prolific Christian writers in the first century AD. So for the younger audience here and for my junior class, the, word, the letters AD do not stand for after death. Okay? BC might mean before Christ, but AD does not mean after his death. If not, there will be a 33-year gap and then we'll never account for that. It stands for Anno Domini, or the year of our Lord when he was born. Sidetrack. Not entirely related. <laughs> some nuggets of knowledge for everybody. There is some debate as to whether he wrote the book of Hebrews, but assuming he did, he would have contributed 14 books to the New Testament. And now comes the quiz. How many books are there in the New Testament? Wow. Thank you. <laughs> yes, 27. And 14 out of 27 is more than half of the books. And... If you think about it, it's more than the rest of the apostles and the disciples combined. If you think further about it, you, re you realise that out of the four Gospels, only two were written by apostles. Right? One was written by Luke, a doctor, and another by Mark, who was the nephew of Barnabas. Okay, so his journey as an, as an apostle took him all across the Mediterranean and into Europe, starting in Jerusalem and ending in Rome, where church tradition says that he was martyred at the hands of Emperor Nero. Interestingly enough, Paul is thought to have been beheaded. As we know, Paul is a Roman citizen, and Roman citizens cannot be, be, cannot be crucified, which is unlike how Jesus died. This is a map of Paul's travels. If you refer to me, to the graph on my right or on my left, whichever is closer to you, you will see that there are four lines in the legend below. The first journey, the second journey, the third journey, and the journey to Rome. Some scholars would postulate that his, his journey to Rome would be his fourth missionary trip. But for the sake of this lecture, I am no expert in this. I'll just leave this as it is. Okay? Just look at that route. If this was a cruise to many countries, this would be a fantastic route, right? You start all the way from Jerusalem and you end in Rome, 
right? You see the cultures, the food, the people. Oh. For someone, this might be an ideal cruise, right? Maybe not for me because I get seasick, but someone who enjoys the waters and these, the, uh, these many, many travels would enjoy it. And if you notice, somewhere right in the center of the map, next to Greece, you'll see there's a line with the word Patmos. And Patmos will be familiar to some people. John, yes, that's where John the Revelator died of old age, the only apostle to do so. Anyway, so for someone's dream in this current day and age, Paul managed to live that dream somewhat, only in terms of mileage. Okay? Because his journeys were far from comfortable or luxurious. This was no Royal Caribbean experience. Okay, my brother can vouch for that. <laughs> During his time preaching the gospel on these many, many missionary trips, he was stoned, he was seized or kidnapped by the public, he was beaten and left for dead, he was arrested and accused, look at that number of verses, by his own kinsmen. The Jewish people arrested and accused their own men. He was shipwrecked, and not just that, in that same shipwreck, he was bitten by a snake. As if things couldn't get worse, he had to get a snake bite. And this is just in the book of Acts. Right? You are, uh, if you read the other books in the New Testament, you realise he has gone through so many things. This is just one book. Just going through one, of, one or two of these things would have been life-changing for any of us, for me especially. And it would put me in a state of constant grumbling and or agony. I would ask God, why are you doing this to me? I'm doing your work eh. Or the other one that people tend to say, why do bad things happen to good people? Am I not, going to good, am I not doing the good work? You can even read a recount of Paul's trials in 2 Corinthians. Don't need to turn, just reference, 2 Corinthians. He himself recounts the troubles that he has been through and he compares them to the other people who are complaining about their problems. Okay? Just, just for you to read after the sermon. Anyhow, despite these many unfortunate events that happened to Paul, he perseveres. He doesn't stop at his first missionary journey. He goes on his second, his third, and his fourth, even though he's going to die in Rome. If you read his recounts, he goes to King Agrippa and, if I'm not wrong, Felix, the governor of that city where he's imprisoned under house arrest. And instead of going to the local authorities where he could have been uh, uh, freed, he decides to take his case to Caesar solidifying his death sentence from there on out. Despite this, he continues on his journey, he preaches his message, and he doesn't give up. Not just that, he prays. He prays a lot, and he praises God in everything that he does. In fact, if you open any of the books that Paul wrote, you will find that within the first paragraph, the first few lines, or if it's a bit longer, the first chapter, he has already prayed for someone for something, for the church they are serving, for the people they are serving, and for himself. He has already given praise to God for all that he has received. You can check on this after the sermon. And it's not just in times of peace and tranquility when he can afford to sit 
write with a nice quill pen, you know, can relax, have a nice hot drink. I don't know what they drink in those days. And have plenty of time to think and meditate on God's word. He did it in every situation. Let's just take a look in Acts 16. So some story time for everyone. I don't intend for you to read the whole chapter. But here's some context. Paul is on adventure with his buddy Silas. Okay? Paul and Silas are in the city of Thyatira, which is somewhere in Macedonia, inspired by a vision from God earlier in the chapter to come and preach to the Macedonians. You know, he had a dream. There was one man from Macedonia asking him, Come, Paul, tell us the good news. And so he did. And he went around the city preaching the good news to everybody. And it so happened that on the Sabbath day, when he was supposed to go to the synagogue, they were being harassed by a female slave who was being possessed and was used by her owners as a fortune teller. So they used her to tell fortunes, to line their pockets. Okay? Uh, morally and ethically, uh, I do not agree with that. <laughs> but this girl would follow them around the city, proclaiming that these two men were servants of the highest God and that they were going to teach salvation to the inhabitants of Thyatira. Of course, I don't think Paul would have taken any issue with this. I mean, she wasn't wrong. But he took issue probably with the fact that she was being used despite her current state of possession. And he was sick of it. So he turned around, he faced the girl, and he cast the demon out. You can read it in the chapter later as well. The owners of this girl were furious because now they had no income. No one was paying them for their poor, possessed slave to tell fortunes. So they dragged Paul and Silas to the authorities and claimed that what they were doing was inciting unrest within the community. Bad people. So the people in the city saw, and they are actually quite good friends of the owner. So they joined in, and they made more noise at the, at the authorities. And since the Greek people were democratic, they all agreed on the same thing. And the Roman authorities decided to just follow what they say. They went along with it, and they flogged or whipped these two men and threw them in jail. Talk about fairness and due process, shall we? <laughs> now, the prison that they were in will not look in any way like the prisons we have now. Okay, let's take a look at this picture. No clean walls or floors, no central ventilation, nothing that resembled a bed, bench or toilet. Okay, these prisons were cold and mouldy, often made from rock and dunk into hills or rock faces riddled with pests and disease. I think you can see some rats, if it's not too dark. The prisoners' hands were often bound, and their feet set in blocks, much like this photo, awaiting their release, death, or exile. Okay. I think that we can agree that whatever circumstance we've been in, it couldn't be worse than being in here. If it were me, after being in the worst public trial of my life, with no lawyer, being flogged by a soldier, and then being thrown into prison, I would have lost my mind completely. I'd probably start writing my will on one of the stones, and I ask my buddy, hey, Silas, help me to sign also. <laughs> but what did Paul do? Instead of complaining or wallowing in self-pity, or being angry or fearing for his life, he prayed, 
and he praised God. The other prisoners even stopped to listen to him, speak and sing. And it's not just that. In the jail, there's an earthquake. Wow. His luck never seems to get better. But even so, he continued to pray and praise God, in addition to stopping his guard from taking his life. True story, CX 16 verse 28. Paul's emotional and mental state were not dependent on what happened around or to him. His joy and happiness were present in his times of trouble because the source did not come from outside. It came from within and it came from somewhere else. So where can we find this source of joy? Let's look at the book of Philippians. If you would turn to me to Philippians 4, 11 to 13. Philippians 4, 11 to 13. For those without their Bibles, there's a verse on the slide as well. And you will find that my scripture reading is inside here. But the additional verse is in verse 11, where he says, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. Paul was content, despite the circumstances. Nearing the end of his 35-year ministry and during his arrest in Rome, Paul writes his last letters to the four churches, Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi and Colossae. Uh, James, you're watching this. The mnemonic he used was go eat popcorn. Okay? Go eat popcorn. Okay? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. <laughs> In addition to this, uh, there's another mnemonic I can teach you later, but not for now. And he also writes to his friends Timothy and Titus. To the church of Philippi, he wrote a book encouraging them and strengthening them despite all that they had gone through. And this was one of the verses inside. And if you look at verse 13, it is probably one of the most famous verses in the world. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. His contentment, his outlook on life were truly divinely inspired. He did not place his happiness in earthly things or his treasures on earth, of which he had none. Rather, he placed his faith in things above and he drew fulfilment, satisfaction, and contentment from God. A strength like no other held him up in the worst of his days. So how do we achieve this? Right? Being content is not easy. We face challenges, disappointments, and hurdles on a day-to-day -day basis. Right? Just getting up this morning was a challenge for some people today, myself included. Wherever I live, or we live, our lives are inevitably affected by our environment, our surroundings, and the events that go around us. Paul writes many pointers in his letters regarding contentment and fulfilment in Christ, but I'll just focus on two today to start, off off, start us off in those times of need. So, firstly, praise or thanksgiving. We have so many things to give thanks for. Remember the song, Count Your Blessings? We all know the song. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. 
and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Just think about that. Count your blessings. And what will it do? It will surprise... Oh, sorry. <laughs> it will surprise you. Right? And why? I'll be going through quite a few verses, so just sit back and relax. I'll bring you through them one by one. If there's an important one, I'll say it three times. So let us borrow some examples from the young adults. In times of difficulty, Sherwin spoke of standing up, standing up for Christ and God provides His promise that He will always stand beside us when we do so. See Isaiah 41 verse 10. Isaiah 41 verse 10, He says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In times of uncertainty, Daniel discussed trusting God in difficult times. We give thanks for God's assurance that He will be a constant and a steadfast foundation we can hold on to. In Isaiah 46 verse 4, he says, I am your God and I will take care of you until you are old and your hair is grey. I made you and I will care for you. I will give you help and rescue you. A lifelong guarantee. When we need God's guidance in our daily lives, Ella shared that the choices following our thoughts can and will be guided by God when we ask. For in James 1 verse 5, he says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And finally, another example in this current world climate, a time of worry and anxiety, especially for the young people of today, God assures us that no matter what happens, He will provide for us. There is no need or insufficiency that He cannot fulfil or replace. This is the important verse. Let us turn to Matthew 6. Matthew 6.25. Again, Matthew 6.25. There's no verse on the screen, so if you have your Bible, please turn to it. If you don't have one, turn to your friend next to you. Matthew 6, verse 25. And let me read the verse from the NIV. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look, up, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are, they not much more, are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? It ends verse 27. I love this verse, mostly because in verse 27, Jesus tells us that there is no benefit to worry. It's so applicable in our lives today. In Singlish, if I translate it properly, it basically says, eh, don't worry. You worry also cannot live longer, right? And if they ask you who said this, the text is in red. So Jesus said it himself. We have been blessed tremendously by our God, a God who cares for us. When we give thanks, it is natural to rejoice in what God has done. We are satisfied and fulfilled by what He has given 
and provided for us. Because the thing is this, if people give you gifts, if God strengthens you or blesses you, it will never give us contentment if we fail to recognise what He has done. We will just overlook it. We will take it as if we, are, we deserve it. And once we do that, we forget all these wonderful things and then we complain and become miserable. But if we count our blessings, we'll be surprised at what He'll do for us. And just another point, when we give thanks to people, we tend to do three things. Okay? Just imagine, okay, for myself, I'm in school, I need to present a, a patient to my sir, right? If I do well, my colleagues, assuming I have very communicative communicative colleagues will look at me and say, wow, thank you, Ned, for presenting this difficult patient. Wow, you are the best. Please teach me next time. Okay, i say that one sentence again. Huh? Wow, thank you, Ned. You are the best. Right? Please teach me next time. In that sentence, your buddy has thanked you, he has praised you, and he has asked you for help. Why can't we do that for God? Right. Saying this to my buddy is really very difficult. But speaking to God, isn't it much, much, much easier? And speaking of speaking to God, let's talk about prayer. So, speaking and communicating with God helps us to build a relationship with a power higher than all else. There are some things that you may never discuss with your friends or family. It may be an issue that you just don't have the courage to tell anyone about you are too ashamed to ask for help with, or you are struggling with something that only you know about. But there's something you have to remember, we have to remember. God already knows all our wants and our needs. God only wants us to recognise those wants and needs, to ask Him for help, and as the song said, to surrender our will and worry to Him. In Matthew 6, verse 7, it's okay, I can read it, and when you pray, do not heap up empty praises as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask of Him. And in Isaiah 65, 24, He says, Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. And the book of James, James's favourite book, it tells us to pray in all situations. So this is the important verse. James 5.13 James 5.13 No verse again, I apologise. So if you have a Bible, please turn to James 5.13 okay. This is a, quite a long passage, but it's okay. I can read it. James 5.13 is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Just from this passage, it is safe to say that we are to pray continually in the good times, in the bad times, when we are happy, sick, or in need of forgiveness. Building this relationship with God 
gives us an assurance that when we are in need, God hears us and that He will take care of us. Paul's letters, as mentioned, always starts with prayer and praise. And he tends to end the same way as well. This man who was so inspired by the Holy Spirit and was so in touch with God's miracles and wonders still took the time to speak to God. What more should we? To sum up what I've said so far, Paul puts it very eloquently in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18, where he says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. With that, I'm done talking about Paul, and let's circle back to what we were talking about in the beginning. Happiness is, during the course, the course of this sermon, we have established that happiness on its own is not what we are looking for or what we should be chasing for. Rather, we should be looking for the satisfaction, the fulfilment and the contentment that only God can provide. That we should be looking to keep this real joy in our hearts. Sorry, Once we do, as the song says, doesn't matter if the teardrops start. Let me end the sermon with a short story from my childhood. Okay? So I grew up in a Christian household, I'm sure most of, uh, of you would know, and my parents and grandparents were there to guide me through the years. They each have their individual stories, but today is my papa's turn. Papa means grandmother in Chinese. Okay? My grandmother, as you can see in the photo, uh, that's me, I think, 20 years ago. <laughs> She's a staunch Seventh-day Adventist and she has brought me up since I was a young boy. She and my grandfather got me this Bible when I was... Oh my goodness. A long time ago. This is 17 years old, by the way. Oh, I was, 17, I was 7 years old then. She and my Kong Kong got me my first proper NKJV Bible in bound leather. 27th of February, 2007. When I was growing up, she would always remind me to pray. The standard four times a day prayer that we are, we are all so familiar with. Okay? So you know the four, right? The three that we have before meals, and then the one we have before we sleep, ah, those four. <laughs> then we will add one or two along the way if I have an exam coming, or I need to apply for something that I cannot, I'm scared it doesn't go through. I remember it was during my time in primary school when she began to ask me, where do you pray this morning? That time I was just starting primary three, so I was nine. And that meant going to school in the morning instead of the afternoon. For those who still remember, like me, primary school used to have two sessions, okay? One in the morning and one in the afternoon. I had to go to the morning session. Praying in the morning then was difficult. Getting a nine-year-old kid out of bed. To go to school is hard enough. You ask him to spend five minutes praying instead of sleeping, near impossible. So when I was younger, clearly I didn't do that. Like, I didn't even see the importance of the prayer. But during the preparation of this sermon, I realised its importance. Because at the end of the day, before I'm going to sleep, we always give thanks for what has passed. And that's good for the safety, the sustenance of what God has provided. 
and then we'll ask for a good night's sleep. Okay? But in the morning, my grandmother would tell me to start my prayer with, and listen closely, thank you God for waking me up today. For a nine-year-old child, it might not make much sense. But she was reminding me that waking up from my sleep is not a guarantee. Waking up is not a guarantee. To be able to open my eyes in the morning was already something to be so thankful for at the beginning of my day. Okay? And it ties in to what I'm going to ask you of this week. Because just by praying in the morning and thanking the Lord for waking you up, you have completed both of the things I've mentioned in this sermon, which are thanksgiving and prayer. Exactly. Like Paul in his life as a Christian, I challenge all of you to try this this week. To wake up in the morning as you're preparing your Milo or using the washroom. To pray. The prayer can be two minutes or five minutes or however long you need. But just remember two things. To pray and give thanks. If you don't know how to pray, if you don't know what to say, or it's your first time praying, just start with what my grandmother taught me this young man, boy, 15 years ago. Fold your hands and say, thank you God for waking me up today. Amen. Besides, when you give thanks to the Lord for giving you your breath in the morning, everything else in life is a bonus. So, thank you. Have a blessed week ahead. Thank you, Nathaniel, for that inspiring sermon. I'll remember what you said. We'd like to invite all of you to stand for the closing song.
Our Father in heaven, we give thanks for everything they have given to us and we praise you for all that you are and all you have provided. As we leave the service today, may you watch over everyone here and those at home. Keep them safe, Lord. Keep them in your hands and keep them in your sight. We they continually remember that when you are here, everything will be taken care of for you. It will be well with our souls. So I thank you, Lord, for listening to us and for being with us on this journey. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.